Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And welcome to Circadian School, hosted by me, Johnny Seifert. This is the Celebrity Mental Health Podcast, or I say it's okay to not be okay. And whether you're watching on YouTube or listening on Spotify or Apple Music, wherever you're listening, click that subscribe button, leave a five-star rating and a review, and let's keep spreading the word, it's okay to not be okay. And let me tell you about my guest today. Yesterday is part of the Security and Secure Book Club, where I take a novel and I speak to the author about the mental health themes behind the book. And this week, it's Christmas by Candlelight by Karen Swan. And I'm so delighted that she joins me now to bring some Christmas joy, maybe not through her book, but through her. Karen, welcome to Security and Secure. Thank you for joining me. Let's go straight from the top, because Christmas by Candlelight, I thought by the name, because if you can't see, I've got no blurb on the back. I thought, oh, Christmas by Candlelight, that connotates, hmm... Two people who meet on a date in a restaurant at Christmas time. They fall in love and they cuff up for Christmas. And um, it's not that at all, is it? This was my best attempt at doing what they call cosy Christmas. And I just can't quite get there. Every time I do it, I, I end up sliding to the dark side a little bit. I just sort of tend to think that that's how life is, really. I don't think I know a single person who's, whose life is picture perfect and, you know, getting the full happy ending. I've got, obviously, lots of friends who are happy, lots of friends who are unhappy. But no one's, at, you know, a complete extreme of the scale. You know, we're all sort of swinging in the middle <laughs> somewhere. How would you describe the book? Because... There's certain elements that I don't want to give away, but because you're the author, you can say what you want about it. It's sort of a little bit of a closed room trope, if you want to go into the big genres like that. It's set around um, uh, a university reunion in which the main character and her boyfriend are travelling back from a wedding. And the idea is they just pop into this dinner. Everything starts off very surface level, very jolly. The weather changes, they are snowed in. And we we start to understand that there were reasons why this particular character had deliberately chosen to cut contact with her former housemates at uni. And so the the timeline switches between past and present. We see them as students uh, at Durham, and then we see them in the glorious country house where they're having this reunion. And secrets steadily come to the fore as conditions become more difficult and challenging. So you mentioned the past and the present. We're talking about 2014 and 2023, nine years apart. We won't say what happens in those nine years, because I think that's a really nice um, gateway and that's too much of a spoiler. But 
what I'm interested in is why you chose that year of 2014. So regardless of the nine-year gap for the storyline, but for you personally, Karen, what happened in 2014 that was kind of monumental for you to go, that's the year I want to focus on? It was driven by the characters in that um, I wanted them to all be at a certain point in their career, but not so far ahead in their personal journeys that they were settled down with children, that something like a uni reunion would be you know, a logistical challenge if you're having to bring in babies and babysitters and, and all of that. So I, it, it was really driven by the plot requirements to have a group of people whose, whose diaries would enable them to all meet a few days before Christmas. So it's funny you talk about diaries. My, I finished university in 2014 and we're now in 2023. Right. And so for me, that was third year of university. And I was putting myself there going, well, what would I have been like had I been at that dinner table and I'm literally living that life? Because that literally is me between 2014-2023. Where were you at in your career in 2014? I was probably about eight books in at that point. Um, I think my first book came out in 2008-9. And then um, 2011, and I had, I had my first big Sunday Times bestseller. Christmas at Tiffany's and after that I went up to two books a year so by 2014 I was really in the swing of writing a Christmas book and a summer book and yeah <laughs> running to quite a tight schedule. And you're now 25 books in you know quarter of 100 how are mm. you how do you look back now to look at that person in 2008 2009 who started out to look at 2014 to go I've done eight books to now say you've done 25 books you know you started in fashion journalism going down that route of fashion you completely switched out to these novels which are getting darker and darker and darker so when you get to now in 2023 as we wrap up this year how do you look at your career so far it's interesting because none of it was ever planned I never thought I would become a writer and and it was really quite accidental that I did and I also never thought that I'd write two books a year that was also accidental and I think that the reason I've written as many as I have is because Partly I'm sort of greedy because I love the process of writing books and the excitement of publication twice a year and all of that. And also because, you know, I have a family and I'm super driven to achieve for them. So, you know, my children in 2014 would have been sort of 12, 10 and 8. And, you know, you're, you're coming into a point then that they're going to school, they've got clubs, they want holidays, you know. So you, you're sort of feeling like you've got to achieve and, and crack on. So... I, I was certainly hugely driven for my family, but also opportunities came my way. And I thought, well, if not now, when? I don't know how long people will enjoy reading my books for. They may suddenly just get sick of me and, and, and stop in the next five years. I, and that's fine. There comes a point when maybe you you're, you outgrow your audience or, you know, they just look for other people. So I'll, I'll sort of accept what comes, but I'm not one to look a gift horse in the mouth. But then what then happens? Let's say that is five years time, hypothetically, and your audience do stop buying your books or you run out of ideas. What do you then do with your career when you've done so much work in investing in bringing out two books? Yeah, investing in character narrative driven storylines when you go, well, hold on a minute. That's my purpose. That's what I've been building up to for all this time. And now that's taken away from me. Who am I now? Well, I think I'll always write. Um, I mean, do not tell my publishers this, but I would write for free. You know, I it's actually um, a way of being more than anything. It, it, I went, although I never planned to write, when I did start writing, it made total sense of my head. I had actually been telling stories in my head my whole life and I hadn't realised it. I just thought that everybody did that. 
And I feel so hugely lucky that I just happened to sit down one day and decide to write a scene at the behest of uh, my literary agent at the time who said, please try fiction, have a go. And I had protested and said, why would I do that? I'm a journalist, I've, you know, that's not what I do. And she said, no, no, just give it a go. So I did. And I was like, oh my God, this is what I'm supposed to do. And I feel so lucky that I was presented with that opportunity because I sometimes think, what if I just hadn't done that? And I'd spent the last 15 years still be, being a, a, a fashion journalist. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, I, I loved it while I was doing it, but I get so much fulfillment from living in my head, from creating these characters and telling these stories. So I think probably what will happen is that I will slightly, I, I mean, my summer books now are historically based and that's where my personal interest really lies. So probably that's where I'm heading in the future. But, you know, I'll write, even if I've only got, and only sell 10 books, you know, self-publishing on Amazon, I'll, I'll still write them. <laughs> well, I think it's interesting because when you work in journalism, you're telling people stories and you're being that storyteller and you can kind of navigate the story, but there's a limit to what you can do because, you know, you look at someone, you interview them, for example, and you're like, oh, I just wish you'd have said that. I wish you'd given me that quote. Whereas yes. as a storyteller that you're doing when you're writing novels, you can use those quotes and you can take that journey, which, you know, sometimes, sometimes people are a bit guarded and you're like, I just wish I could see the real you. And then you come to a book like, for example, Libby in uh, Christmas by Candlelight, and you can give Libby those narrative and those character arcs that you just wish that person you'd interviewed wouldn't have been able to do. And I can completely see why you can transcend that with those transferable skills. Oh, completely. I mean, you know, when I was working as a journalist, I was working at You Magazine at the Mail on Sunday. Before that, I'd worked at Condé Nast at Tatler and Vogue. And I was doing a lot of human interest stories, but a lot of it was also celebrity-based, which... I just personally had no interest in and what I what I loved was like you say when you would see the person behind this public profile and again everything was very tightly controlled by publicists and PRs and I was like well you know and, and what I I got to was that I realized I loved the process of putting as as much of a story together as I could based on the interviews I had but like like you say, you can only work with the material they give you. You can't put words in their mouths. Whereas when you have your own characters and your own plot, that is precisely what you do. You give them air in their lungs and, you know, skin on their bones. They are your creations. And, you know, that, that freedom is, it's daunting. It's very tricky when you're starting a book, having to make these decisions as to how you're going to form these people, this world. But when you do, I mean, the sense of accomplishment is amazing. And when people say, oh, my God, I've just finished the book. I wasn't ready to give up with these characters. I just want to live with them for a bit longer. That to me is like, yes, that's a win. I've absolutely I've nailed it. I've, I've brought it alive for people. I've just come back from seeing the film Saltburn last week. <laughs> and those characters are still in my head, you know, and I just want to go back and watch it again. And, you know, that for me is a win with Emerald Fennell, you know, that director, she's just brought them alive for me. So it it works across different mediums, but I'm so grateful I get to, to do it as a living. But does that mean then, especially with 25 books in the back of your mind, that you're challenging yourself because that bar, it's only you that's going to keep building that bar up of, can I challenge myself even more to get these characters? Whereas, like you said, the audience are quite receptive that they'll probably enjoy it regardless because you know how to write for your audience. But 
it's you writing in your head that can take it to that next level always. Yes, and the challenge when you do as many books as I've done and will continue to do is that each character's got to read differently. They've got to feel completely different so that when someone has read all 25 of my books, literally all of those characters could be in a room with them and they, and they wouldn't all be a carbon copy of the same person just in different clothes. So I, that's where the challenge is. And I, I take that really seriously that I don't, you know, I don't just trot out, you know, parodies and, and pastiches. You know, I'm trying all the time to make my characters feel real. And I do that by making them flawed. You know, I, I and sometimes downright unlikable. I'm, I'm not at all scared to, to put in a character that, you know, I don't personally like myself. I don't agree with what they're doing or saying, but you know, you, you need that balance. You need that breadth. I completely agree with you. Well, look, let's talk about these characters and let's delve into your book. Um, the yeah. first character I want to talk about is actually Charlie. Um, yes. It's quite interesting. Charlie is worth a hundred million pounds and he is adopted and he's been through the foster care system and he found that getting a job was his stability in life which he didn't get in his personal life what i'm interested in is obviously the idea of does money make happiness and i think when we look at someone like charlie what do you think about the way he looks at his life regardless of the money is it the money that makes him or is it the lifestyle he's now got for himself i think that he is driven into the career and the success he has because of his background and because of that need to somehow anchor his own life, to have an identity, which I think if you've been through the foster system, you don't have that, you know, you don't. And so I think that's a really powerful driver and it was nice to give him a success story, but there is a hollowness to him. You know, he does have this uh, sort of unrequited love for another one of the characters that has always been simmering away in the background. And he's he's very understated about his success. He doesn't actually tell any of the other friends. He doesn't want to be defined by it in the eyes of other people. For him, it's like a drive to succeed, to achieve, but he doesn't actually, it's not a flex. He doesn't want other people to know that about him. And I don't think that for him, that's something that he, he feels he needs to have that. Um, and I felt that Charlie had a lot of heart and that actually he was very, anchored in I think he always felt that he knew that his happiness lay with this character and there was always a hope there that things were gonna happen um and and I liked being able to explore that in the book and to you know not just I, I did not want it to come across that she's gonna fall in love with him because of his money at all that just would have been ghastly and not what I wanted. I really, I wanted his money to be incidental. I just wanted his success to speak to him as a person in terms of his personal drive, but for him to be so much more than that. And what we really connect to with him is he's got this sense of remove, but also he's, he's come over from California. He's sort of got that, not trippy dippy, but that sort of wellness culture. He knows what he needs to make his life whole he's got everything but he also knows he doesn't have the one thing he wants and and so i i loved writing he was my favorite character in the book actually he was my favorite character oh, um, I'm glad. and when we look at the book chapter five for me i don't know how much you remember of writing the book but chapter five for me just was incredible the writing of chapter five was amazing and there's a couple of quotes in there i want to read to you having everything is the worst thing that can happen to a man it rots his soul no one should have what they want on tap what a sentence and it's so incredible can you explain to me 
why you decided to write it like that and what your thoughts are on that? So I do personally believe that it's not good for uh, people to have everything. I, I do think we all need a drive and a reason to get up in the morning. Even if you are tremendously privileged and you have lots, you still need a focus to your days, a reason for you to, to be on planet Earth. Uh, whatever it is, it doesn't need to be about acquiring more stuff, acquiring more wealth. It, it could be that you work in charity or that, you know, it, it, you just have to be giving in some way and you have to want something and to be chasing something in order to, to sort of feed your soul. With regards to the character that that is, who is saying that, he, you know, immediately comes off as incredibly privileged and everyone's going to judge him. And added to which he's, you know, he, he's an aristocrat, he's uh, got a, uh, a great estate, he's got a title, you know, we're going to form an opinion about him off the bat. And he doesn't want a pity party, but I felt that actually by creating, making his greatest asset also his Achilles heel, it gave us a vulnerability and a way in with him because otherwise, why do we care about him? You know, you know, we, uh, there needed to be a way to humanize him. And I just felt that actually it would be such an overlooked part of who he is because 99.9% of people would only see the title, the stuff. And he sort of exploits it at uni, but actually the vulnerability is, is in what he doesn't say, what he doesn't show this very, very private man, everyone sort of knows the, you know, the legend, and he's sort of overshadowed by it. And it's about finding him in, in the cracks of that. And when he says it, it's actually a really vulnerable moment, because there are a few people he'd be able to say that to. And even she is, is resistant to him when he first says it. But I really just felt like it was a way to get in with him and to, to show that he's a flesh and blood man. At essence, he wants the same as her, you know, he wants the same as anyone. Forget the house, forget the land, forget the type, forget it. You know, he's he has his own backstory, he has his own loss and private tragedy. Because I genuinely don't believe that everyone has it all and, and everyone's people are living a perfect life. Everyone's got a story somewhere. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
talk about how Libby has a drive and he basically, as we've said, has no drive. Libby has the drive. When we look at someone who is motivated to get out of bed, to be working, to be working at midnight, to do rewrites, what's it been like for you? Because I imagine, especially early on in your career, when you'd been submitting your copies of your books to your editors, you'd have had the red pen back and more red pen and more red pen. And you keep challenging each other and, you know, you always notice a new full stop. What was that drive for you to keep writing, to keep getting it right, to get out of bed every day? I've always been hugely collaborative. So for me, there's not ego involved in it. All I want at the end of the day is to put out the best product that I can. I'm not labouring under the illusion that I'm writing a book that's going to change anyone's life. But what I can do is maybe change their day. I can improve their day. So I do want to make people laugh and cry and feel. And, and I do believe I can do that in my books. And I take that very seriously. I get a lot of readers who contact me privately with various stories to tell me. And I feel very hugely privileged to receive those. For example, I, I get an awful lot of readers who, who might be suffering from cancer and they're in the chemotherapy chair, maybe for six, eight hours at a time. And they discover one of my books and then they discover I've got this big backlist. And they say to me, I'm literally able in those hours to escape my reality, my present, having to sit in that chair and go through what I'm going through. And that is what I'm thinking about all the time. I'm thinking about how can I make this the best thing it can be so that whenever anyone gets it, it just touches them in some way and makes their day a bit better or makes them feel seen or just gives them something to think about. You know, I really... I really want to do that. I'm not going to change anyone's life, but I can give them something. I can give them a, an improved move, mood. I can make them cry if they need to cry. You know, I just, that's what I want. And so I work incredibly hard and I'm totally open to criticism. I think this is one of the great things about having been a journalist. I'm very pragmatic. I have a word count, I have a deadline, and then I'm submitting to editors and there's a huge team behind you know, uh, Pan Macmillan, who are all doing their jobs to the best of their ability to put out the best product that we can. Be that the title, the back cover copy, the, the cover, the edit, you know, and we all work together. And I and so I don't I don't put my ego out there and go, no, this is my baby. It must it must be this. You know, I'm willing to listen. And if they say, oh, God, this just totally isn't working or we need to change the direction on this. I'm I'm really up there, you know, to be part of the team and, and to go with it. I mean, obviously, I'll fight for what I believe in. But, you know, I, I think it's a team effort. And yeah, I, that's how I see it. And that's how I approach it. Amazing, amazing. And um, the final quote I want to do with you is from page 302. Life is rarely clean. Everything overlaps and meshes. It's always a mess. Timing is never perfect. Can you think of a time in your life where you can exemplify where that's happened? That really does apply to my life. You know, there's there are times when it looks like everything is going well for me. You know, I might have a book that's gone to number three in the charts and something awful is happening with my children, you know. And, you know, life is multifaceted. I'm, I'm a wife, I'm a mother, I'm a daughter, I'm a sister, I'm an aunt. You know, I'm trying all the time to be many things to many people. There's huge demands on my time. I want to do the best I can, but I get it wrong. I mean, I definitely get it wrong at times. It can definitely feel too much, uh, even when it can look 
perfect. I would say that I, this time last year, I was definitely suffering from burnout. Uh, we'd had several years of uh, difficult things happening for our family. And I had a really grueling schedule that I was obviously having to keep up with. And I got to the point where I was really struggling to create because I was really at the edge of my capacity. And it was an incredibly difficult time to get through. Uh, it was sort of this time last year, I was dreading Christmas. We were hosting, I was absolutely dreading it. I felt overwhelmed at the prospect of having to do all the Christmas shopping, put up the decorations, host, start the new book. I started it on Boxing Day with the, you know, Christmas by candlelight. I started on Boxing Day last year. And I knew that I had to push through until my deadline in the middle of February. And the only thing that kept me going was that I knew I then had a few weeks break and I, I went on a retreat to, to Bali. I went with my daughter and on the outside, it would have looked like, oh, look at this incredibly luxurious wellness retreat you're going on. You've just handed in your book and all of this. But really, I was right at the edge of functioning and I, I needed that. And I, I had to really sort of stop, take time out and start putting in some boundaries in order to regroup and, you know, get back to myself again. Uh, and that's been a process for six, eight months. So what are those boundaries you've put in place for 2023 to stop that burnout happening this time around again? So I'm much stricter now about trying not to work weekends. And when I submit, I need a week off with no emails because you know, I, I've obviously, I'll submit to my editor, I'll submit to my agent, but because I've, I've always got, I'm doing two books a year, when I'm submitting a book, I've also got a book out that's just been published. So that needs promotion, that needs social media work, there's a lot of press going on. In addition, I've also then got to start researching the forthcoming book. So then I'm into that as well. Plus, I'll have stuff coming in from my international publishers. I might have to travel, you know, they want me to travel somewhere. So I got to a point where I was like, by having a week of no contact at all with anyone in the office, I'm just able to switch off my head, be with my family, and, and really crucially, move. Because I spend so much time in my study, sitting at my desk. I can spend 10 hours sitting down, and that's terrible for me. I'm very lucky that I live in the Ashdown Forest in Sussex. I've got two dogs. And I find that when, I, when I've got those weeks where I'm not urgently writing I'm so active I, I never sit down I'm never at my desk because I'm just moving my body and that is just so good for my mind and so thinking of your mind thinking of all of these things put together a little fun question to wrap up this interview Karen if you could be stuck in a dining room as your characters are over Christmas in the cold with no technology there's no escape what three celebrities, dead or alive, would you want to be stuck with? Oh, my goodness. Oh, golly. Okay. I would want to be with Jane Austen because she was a woman ahead of her time in terms of her, her attitude towards men and courtship. And I love her wry, light tone. And I, would, I just think she saw through so much artifice and... She was such a full-blooded woman. I would just love to talk to her. So I'd love to meet Jane Austen. Then I would have to say I'd love to meet... I think it would probably all be 
writers. I think actually I'd love to sit down with Emerald Fennel after Saltburn, because again, I think she's got a really interesting woman's perspective on the world, which I love. And she's, she's strong. She's not scared to be dark. She's not scared to be controversial. Um, I like that. Um, and she's got an excellent sense of humor. Let's have a man, let's put a man in there. Um, oh God. Maybe I'd say um, Paul Newman <laughs> because he's so beautiful. I just like to sit opposite him. <laughs> yeah, he's so gorgeous. <laughs> amazing, amazing. Well, Karen Swan, your book Christmas by Candlelight is out by now in time for Christmas. It's not your little Christmas romantic novel. So if you want something a little bit darker this Christmas, go and buy Karen Swan's book now. And if you enjoy Skinning Skin, you want to be part of our book club. There are authors including Jane Fallon, Adele Parks, Amanda Prowse, Claire McIntosh, loads of other authors in the Skinning Skin book club talking about the mental health themes in their novels as well. And if you enjoy Skinning Skin on YouTube, click that subscribe button, leave a thumbs up and leave a review on Apple Music or Spotify, wherever you're listening, click that subscribe button, leave the five star rating and leave a review. And let's keep spreading the word. It's okay to not be okay on social media, on TikTok at Johnny Seifert 92, on X at Johnny Seifert, and on Instagram at Johnny Seifert at Killian's Kid Podcast. As well, I put all the teasers of all the episodes so we can keep spreading the word. It's okay to not be okay. Until next time, thank you and goodbye. Mm-hmm.